Welcome to the Views Podcast with your hosts, Nate Farmer Eden and Cole Farrow. Get ready to move even closer to financial freedom as they reveal the real estate investing strategies you need to acquire assets you can cash flow or flip. Now, let's get into today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to another episode of Views. I'm your co-host, Nate Farm-Reading. Allow me to introduce my counterpart here. Cole, how we doing, brother? What's going on, Nate? Doing good. How you doing today? Oh, man, dude. So much stuff is going on right now. But it's like, again, one of those memes where, like, you feel like everything around you is on fire. You're just sitting there like, <laughs> I'm in danger. But you're like, you know what? I, I got to do it. I got to get through it. It's fine. It's so true. I feel like there's so much good stuff going on. And then there's also just this mind-boggling other pieces that we're trying to figure out that we have no idea what to do with. And it's just like, all right, it's fine. Everything will fine. Let's work out. We're going to figure it out. I love it. I love it. Look, real quick, before we jump into everything coming, and this is going to be an episode that I have been looking forward to forever. Um, first, please leave us a rating and review so that we can help grow and educate others. Second, please subscribe so you don't miss any other episodes. And third, of course, please buckle up because we're going to have an awesome time here. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you for the housekeeping. All right, without further ado, today we're actually interviewing one of our, both of our coaches, Coach John Kasman. Let's go ahead and bring him on stage. Coach, how we doing, brother? First of all, it's it's great to be here. Uh, thank you for having me. I did a rookie mistake. I jokingly talked to you off camera saying I've done like a thousand interviews. And here I am uh, talking with my, my mic on mute. So <laughs> apologies on that. But let that humility sink in for everybody, right? It doesn't matter how many times you've done it. Uh, you can still have little mishaps here and there. But it's great to talk to both of you tonight. Awesome. John, I'm so excited to have you on here. This has been an episode in the making and just hearing your podcast and going through everything that we've done. It's just, it's thrilling to be here. So yeah, I'm excited for you guys on this platform, man. I was looking at that intro, like, man, that is, that's some high quality production right there. Like I got to step my game up. <laughs> Look, anything we do, you know, you got your name attached to it, brother. And in fact, you were in the intro. Man, I saw it. I, I caught. I caught the. I caught the visual there. That's awesome. <laughs> a little cameo, man. I had to give you a shout out. Yeah, but I listen, what I want to do is ask you a couple questions here. And the first one is, what got you here? What brought you here? Why real estate? Fill us in on your backstory. Yeah, I'll try to make this kind of tight. We can dive in wherever you guys want to dive in. But um, you know, for me, I was like many of your listeners. You know, I went to school. I try to do what they tell you to do to be successful. Right. I, I looked around. Um, had a, you know, kind of blue collar upbringing that, you know, worked a couple blue collar jobs. Um, and you know, we, we made ends meet, but it was, it was a bit of a struggle. Uh, the people I saw who weren't struggling as much, you know, they typically went to college and had nice corporate jobs. So that's what I decided to do. Went to college, got my degree, got a job in advertising and marketing. And I did that for 15 years, but along that journey, early in that journey, um, I got a, I got promoted and I was working at General Motors and I was there when we went through bankruptcy. So this security that I was searching for very quickly got yanked from underneath me and I found myself filled with anxiety trying to figure out what would happen if I lost my job. And that's really when I turned to real estate because real estate was one of those things that could provide some security, could provide passive income, was a great plan B. And that really started me on that journey. Now, <laughs> it took some time before you know that idea in my head came to fruition in reality. 
But that was really the moment that I said, you know what, I think I really need to take this real estate thing and find a way to pursue it. Amazing. I love the story. I want to dive in deeper. So you said you came from advertising and you worked into real estate. You kind of give us some insight, but dive in more. So why did you get into multifamily specifically? Because we know that's where you're at now. And how did that look? How did that transition from zero to where you're at now kind of go? Yeah. So when I was in advertising, I remember reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad earlier, right? And that book obviously talks about, you know, investing in real estate and passive income and all those different philosophies. And as I started going further and further into this world of real estate, what became clear to me is that people who invested in single families, they usually wish they invested in multifamily earlier. That was something I read over and over and over, right? I wish I got into multifamily sooner. So with that knowledge, I said, well, why start with single family? I'll just jump straight to, to multifamily, small multifamily, but I was always focused on multifamily. So for us, uh, and I say us, meaning my wife and I, we really started by attending events, you know, networking, going to meetups and just seeing other people who are actually doing it. Because for us, it just didn't seem real. You know, I, I didn't know any real estate investors. The only people I knew who invested in real estate uh, were landlords or people in books and, and podcasts. So for us, to be around real investors so I can ask real questions and you know and sometimes you know we we take things for granted but looking back I didn't know if people would pay me rent that was my biggest fear is that I would move in a tenant someone would look at me because I was a bit younger at the time someone would look at me and say Psh, I ain't paying you rent and then I'm like now what am I gonna do am I, am I about to fight this guy am I gonna have to just evict them and pray they move out like I don't know how bad this thing can get right <laughs> so that was my biggest fear starting out was like someone's gonna look at me say no and it's gonna be on right and I'm just have to roll up the sleeves and figure this thing out uh it never came to that obviously and that worked out great great for us but you know in talking to these people they looked at me like no dude like if someone doesn't pay you know, there's an eviction process, but more importantly, there's a process to screen these tenants to make sure you're only putting it, putting in quality people in the first place. So once I kind of overcame those issues, then it became clear that this was a great path. As a matter of fact, that first deal, it worked so well that we were able to pull out a six figure line of credit, which allowed us to invest in more deals. So that really was the springboard and multifamily was a strategy from the jump, mainly just because I knew people who had invested in single family always said go to multifamily. So we believed in that. But more importantly, once I started seeing that growth for myself and then talking to other people who were in multifamily, there really was no ceiling. You know, there was no cap of how many deals you could do, how many units you could do. Then it became about, you know, really helping other people, building systems and processes and being able to find these deals. So at that point, I really focused on educating myself more, growing what I was doing so that I could help other people in that process. I love that. It's funny, something you said about fearing your tenants not paying rent. When I got started at 18, 19, I had a drug dealer tenant in my first duplex and I didn't know what I was doing. So I would walk up to the door and knock on the door and be like, hey, rent's due. Where is it? And he would always hand me like half. And I would just like look at it and be like, where's the other half? And he was like, I don't have it. And I'd be like, oh, oh okay. Okay, like what am I going to do? And you just like leave and you figure it out later. But it's so funny you mentioned that. It's just such a real thing. Nowadays, not so much, thankfully. But a follow-up question to 
where you're at now, what kind of properties do you look for now? What is criteria that you are looking at or what's your buy box in general? Yeah, my buy box is uh, no drug dealers handing me half the rent uh, for sure. <laughs> Definitely not dealing with that stuff, man. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we focus on B-class apartments typically, right? So when I say B-class, that's usually going to be stuff that is about, you know, anywhere between 30, 40 years old or so. Um, typically going to be in desirable neighborhoods, not the best neighborhoods in the city, but desirable neighborhoods. Um, and these are places where people want to live, you know, uh, they're desirable workforce housing. Um, think about, you know, apartments you might've lived in after, you know, you got your first job or second job after college, those kind of places are where we're looking for. And ultimately we want to provide quality housing where we can, you know, provide the right amenities, you know, beautiful apartment, nice kitchens, bathrooms, make some nice upgrades uh, and, and get premium rents for that housing. So for us, it's really a combination of things. Um, kind of was joking about the drug dealer thing, but I'm not really joking about it. Like, and part of it for us is we want to be able to create a great environment for everyone in our organization that extends to our property management team. So if we're sending them to rough areas or, potentially putting them in harm's way to collect rent. That's just not the business we want to be in. You know, we want to be in a position where people can pay rent. They want to pay rent. They want to, you know, they're quality, you know, citizens. They want to do their part. You know, they're not trying to get over on us necessarily. Hard times happen to everybody, but for the most part, we want to have a nice, you know, agreement where these are people who can pay rent, will pay rent, want to pay rent, uh, and we can provide a quality housing. So it's a really nice service in exchange for what we do. So that's what we look for. We focus par primarily in the Midwest and the Southeast regions. Think about Cincinnati, Louisville, Columbus, Indianapolis. Those are some of the markets we play in. And then down the Southeast, Atlanta, Georgia, Carolinas, a little bit in Florida, a little bit in Texas. Those are the areas that we're primarily buying properties in. Love that. Amazing. Amazing, amazing. I mean, just, just to sort of step it back a little bit, reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, poor dad yeah. coming from like corporate America, and then at some moment, you were like, you know what, go big or go home, forget the small stuff, we're going to go right for multifamily, we're going to hit a home run, crushing it, and then now you've developed systems, you've got those in place, um, and you've actually structured your own buy box, hats off to you, man, and then you're giving back with your own mastermind and everything else you're doing for us, we greatly appreciate it, man. Again, thank you for all you do. Tell me a little bit more to dive a little bit deeper on some of the challenges that you faced. Um, some of those horror stories, the, the nitty gritty, man. And, and you don't have to give me all of them, man, but fill me in. We were joking about the drug dealers, man. So that had to have been something. What's going on? Fill me in, bro. Yeah. So I think there are a couple things, right? I mean, this business has an ugly underbelly to it, right? <laughs> the thing that makes it beautiful is the same thing that makes it ugly. It's the Wild Wild West in many regards, right? So you, you it's... There's structure to it, but it's unstructured. And I come from corporate America, right? I did everything the quote unquote by the book way, right? I went to college, got my degree. I rose up the ranks in corporate America. And I was very used to an environment where if we sit and have a meeting, we're having a conference call like this, and you tell me, hey, you're going to go out, order some sheetrock. Painters will be there on Thursday. They're going to get that done. Monday morning, the unit will be ready. Okay, great. By Thursday, I'm expecting the painters to be there. And by Monday, I'm expecting the unit to be done because that's what you just told me, right? And at some point, if that plan went off script, you would call me and say, hey, I know I said the painters would be there Thursday. Something came up. They're not going to get there till over the weekend. And at that point, I would say, sucks. Not what I was hoping for, but okay, I understand. 
when it comes to real estate, particularly when you're doing, you know, flipping projects, renovations, it just doesn't work like that. It's more of a blue collar mentality. And I don't mean blue collar from, you know, working in a steel mine kind of thing. I mean, more like working in the fast food industry, right? If you are the manager at a McDonald's, you can't just hope your employees show up and do everything they're supposed to do. Like if there's not someone there supervising them, they're going to cut corners. Those corners may be just punching out, you know, a little early, locking the doors at 850 instead of nine, right? They're going to cut corners to to do what they want to do. So you need that supervision. And that was one of the biggest challenges that I faced. So to get into it, we, at the time when I was at this inflection point in the business, we had built personal portfolio worth one and a half million dollars. And I was ready to scale into larger commercial multifamily. In doing that, I made what I thought was a big leap. And I took two really big bets. One was on the syndication business that I was investing in. I hired a coach and a mentor. I started networking. I started, you know, I eventually started the podcast uh, to, to grow that piece there, right? And on the other side of that, I wanted more capital to make it easier to find deals. So I started flipping properties, but because I knew I couldn't do everything. Did I mention that I had a full-time job, by the way, and two (laughs) kids in diapers? Yeah. So I had all that too. So I knew I couldn't take on leading these flip projects. So I, I partnered with another operator developer. And what ended up happening is that developer dropped the ball. And when when I talk to potential investors, I always talk to them about deals that didn't pan out well. Well, this is one. And that developer dropped the ball. I take responsibility because ultimately I decided to partner with them and they couldn't understand how to scale a business. They were really good when they were managing four projects at a time. They doubled that in about a three month window and they had eight projects at a time and they added zero staff and they did nothing to change their process. So every project got delayed and ultimately it was a house of cars that came crumbling down. I lost, I'll put it to you this way. In my flipping business, I lost six figures. Okay. So I went through a really rough time where I really couldn't even talk to my wife about it. I mean, she was in the business, so she knew what was going on. But like any time the subject came up, I got very defensive. She was, you know, it was it was just a rough time frame, right? Because I felt helpless. I felt, you know, at times I just it was really hard on myself. Like, how come you couldn't see the signs that this guy was going to blow this? You know, it's just, it's just all that, that self talk, uh, negative self-talk. And I remember I, I randomly kind of came in to come in touch with the guy, not randomly. A friend of mine recently passed away, which was terrible. He introduced me to a group, and I forget the name of the group, but it's a group where it's meant to be a networking group where everyone is comes from a different background. So one person's like, you know, a physical therapist, one person's an attorney, one person's a lawyer, like one person's a doctor, but it's all a referral networking group. So I went to this event as his guest. I met this guy who ended up becoming another one of my coaches. Uh, so I had my mentor, I had a couple coaches. And with this guy, I was talking to him about just what I was in because I didn't want to talk to my wife about it anymore because, again, it just I didn't want to talk to my, my real estate coach about it because I thought he would just look at me and say, oh, you idiot. Like, how would you how could you make such a big mistake? Right. So I just felt this this loss. I was just lost. Right. So this was one guy I could talk to. Right. I paid him basically to be a quasi therapist and i remember just going off man i'm like this is awful man i'm gonna lose all this money you know every dollar i make in my day job i'm pouring down a drain into these slips to get them done you know i don't have the money now to do the things i do with my kids so i'm just you know i'm upset right and and at the time 
my wife and I bought a house that was going to be our dream house. We were renovating it. We had to pause the renovations. It ended up taking us three years to complete that project. We ended up selling it for just under a million dollars. But so all this is going on at the same time, right? And I remember this guy telling me, and he's he's looking at me intently, you know, and he, he's not saying much. He's just staring at me while I'm laying on his couch and just, you know, going off. And he said, by the way, did I mention I was being sued as well? Sued by, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a lot, dude. It was a lot. I was being sued by a contractor who didn't finish the project, didn't do any of the stuff he was supposed to do, and then tried to put a lien on the project and tried to sue me. I'm like, come on, like you... You could pick one, right? If you want to be upset, pick one. I don't don't like try to do everything. Um. So anyway, all this <laughs> stuff was going on, man. I was stressed beyond. Like I used to have a nice full head of hair. It's gone now. Uh, <laughs> but I was sitting on this man's couch and we're talking, and he looked at me and said, "It sounds like you're failing forward." Now mm-hmm. I don't know what therapy is like because I've never been to therapy. But in my mind, this man was supposed to give me the solutions to make me feel better to unlock the key for me to go solve these issues, right? To tell me how to go finish this project and go make $20,000 back and go do this or go, hey, you know what? You should launch this and that'll make you 50K. That's what I think I was hoping to hear from him. And instead he told me that it sounds like I was failing forward. I never heard that term in my life. And I was so pissed off. I'm like, dude, you are a quack. Like I wasted my time coming to you. And it took a little bit of time for it to sink in what he meant because when you're in that Mm -hmm. moment it's really hard to see the trees from the forest right you feel like you're drowning like i I don't have the time for this philosophical you know debate like dude i'm trying to figure out how i'm gonna pay this contractor how i'm gonna get this off my books how i'm gonna come up with this money when does my next check come in can i borrow from this can i not pay that that's where i was at right and what ended up happening is once i got the first project off the books I was able to breathe a little bit where now at least the money that was coming in, I could put it back in our bank account and start to replenish. And that notion of failing forward always stuck with me because what it really comes down to is those flip projects actually made me a much better real estate investor. And that's the thing that most people don't understand. You know, when you talk to investors, you, if you ever interview people who lost money back in 2008, 2009, they always talk about that experience. Most of them talk about it from a negative context, right? Hey, I was doing great. I was doing this, but yeah, you know, I got wiped out in 2009 and right. But it's great when those things happen, because if you can recover from that, the resiliency it takes to recover, to revise your processes, your strategies. And when we, as an LP, you want to invest with people who are resilient because they're going to continue to look for ways to win. They're going to look for ways to overcome it. They're also concerned. They've been burned enough where they're going to have more caution. They're not blindly optimistic, just assuming a deal is going to work because they're going to will their way through it. No, you can will all you want. Sometimes deals just don't work. One of those flip projects, I ended up having to go to the property myself and we started spending the night. By the way, I've got small children. I have a full-time job. I would go over there around seven o'clock at night paint as much as I can. I would bring a pillow, bring a snack, sleep on the hardwood floor, wake up, paint a little bit more, go home, shower, change, get ready for work. I did that for a couple of weeks because we we just didn't have money to pay these guys. And I'm like, I got to get it done. I remember one night I was there. I'm painting. And I'm by myself. I've got um, like a motivational book going because I need to have something to keep my mind positive. (laughs) And at some point I hear a 
Now I'm by myself in this house. So I'm scared now. I'm like, what, what the hell is that? So <laughs> I turn the music off or the, the uh, motivational book off that I was listening to. And I hear it again. Whoosh, and it's water running. And now I hear it dripping. So now I've got to, I'm looking around the house. I'm looking up at the ceiling. And I realized that we have a leak in the pipes. Now we had, this is a brand new second story addition in this house. The drywall guys, when they were putting in the drywall, they punched the hole in the pipes. Oh my God. So we had to redo all of that. Right. So again, I damn near cried. Right. Like I just sat in the middle of this empty house at like two in the morning. I'm just, I'm like done, done. Right. And I share that because it's easy to look at the successes or, you know, when I hear people talk about a bad deal, it's usually like, oh, you know, hey, yeah, this painter came in and he was late and I lost five hundred dollars. I'm like, dude, I've lost six figures. Right. Um, I went through a period where I really struggled with my confidence as a real estate investor. When you make bad decisions, you're getting feedback. And we can either internalize that feedback and make adjustments, or we can take that feedback to be an assessment of who we are. And for a while, I took it as maybe you're not the real estate investor you thought you were, right? I knew I was good at business. I had plenty of feedback that said I was good at business. I've won awards for marketing campaigns, for productivity, and all sorts of things. I was a good real estate investor, but in this moment, I did not feel like a good real estate investor. And that conflict of, well, I didn't feel like a good real estate investor, but yet I'm trying to scale a real estate syndication business. That was really hurting because it didn't allow me to move and to act with the confidence I needed to be successful. So I think from a grit standpoint, getting over that element was critical and it took time. It wasn't until I got all those bad deals off the books. I really took inventory of what happened. And, and it's the, the clearest thing of what happened, I gave my trust blindly to people that didn't deserve it. I, I didn't vet them thoroughly or because they were doing something that I didn't know. I just said, oh, okay, they know it. That's one of the reasons why I tell even like my LP investors, educate yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you're vetting people, one of the biggest things you want when you're talking to somebody is you want them to respect you, right? If you've got a question or a concern, I should be able to address it right away. If, if someone brushes off your concerns, that is a huge red flag. Even if the red the, the concern is legitimately neutralized, they should be able to articulate why it's not an issue. They shouldn't tell you, hey, don't worry about that. If I hear don't worry about that, I'm out, period. Either you tell me why I don't need to worry about that, you know, or I'm out. Because when you tell me don't worry about that, it means either you're hiding something or maybe you're just being blindly optimistic yourself but you haven't really thought through why this could be an issue. And that's concerning for me. That is so good. And your story is so powerful that you shared. And I can't imagine like the difficulty that you mentioned of not only going through that loss and not only going through with so much other stuff going on, but like you mentioned so early in the career and the effects that has on you, like you said, and like, is this right? And all the, the questions that you have for yourself and just trying to break through that. So, so powerful. And just how you overcame that, the things that you mentioned, I just think it's something that people need to go back, listen to the last five, 10 minutes and just hear that again, because that is so, so powerful transition a little bit 
I know you said you took a leap early on and you went towards a syndication route. I know you're still working in that space. Is that still how you do your funding? Is that still how you like to do things? Is that still how your future holds? What kind of led you to that? Why do you stick with it? Yeah, syndication is our, our bread and butter. We we have and will stick with it. And it really comes down to to this point. When I went through the various hardships as an investor, and even the great parts as an investor, I looked at the people around me and there were people who were interested in investing with me. And at first I would tell them no, just because I didn't, I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. But as I did get more and more comfortable and felt really confident in what I was doing, there became an opportunity to help these individuals. And the reality is most people don't love real estate. Even if people listen to the show, right? you might think you really love real estate. <laughs> Very few people really <laughs> love real estate. You know, we love a real estate can provide right? We love the financial freedom, the flexibility, the tax perks, you know, the cash flow for sure. You know, really owning real estate. Very few people like love, you know, going to go to do a property and, you know, do all the stuff that you got to do there, change the toilets, deal with tenants, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So past investing or more importantly, working together was really important. I had a guy when I um, was first went to like one of the first RIAs I went to, and he had this concept about investing as a team. Now, he did not call it syndication, but he talked about investing as a team. And his the way he put it to me was like, picture if 10 people came together and, you know, one person could bring some money and one person was really good at analyzing deals and one person was a good property manager. If we all came together, it'd be much easier to go out there and buy a property instead of 10 of us as individuals going out there and trying to buy maybe a house or a duplex by ourselves. So that concept always made sense to me. And then when you put it on a scale with syndication, it's like, okay, well, now we can raise all the money under this umbrella of people in our networks. That made a lot of sense. I think where things really crystallized for me is when I realized what I was offering was not an opportunity to invest with me, but it was a service that could help other people, particularly those people closest to me, right? So think about my colleagues, my friends, uh, some family members, um, I know how I am as an investor. I, I care about my investors. Uh, as a matter of fact, I talked about those flip projects where I lost six figures. I did not have to lose six figures. I could have cut that loss much shorter. But my lender was a hard money lender. And I told him, if you believed in me, I want to make sure you get everything you're supposed to get, even if that means me taking a loss. I could have walked away and cut my losses and you know put another 20, 30K back in my pocket. But again, I had a bigger picture that says, if you believe in me as an investor... I want to pay off that belief, right? So that was really important to me. It goes back to character. And when I talk about bringing in family and friends, I approach it the same way. When I'm investing with someone or someone's invested with me, there's what the paperwork says. And then there's, you know, being able to look a man in the eye and do what's right based on, you know, the circumstances. So I would rather them invest with me knowing that I'm going to be, you know, a bit more discerning on opportunities than them going out there with, you know, someone else that maybe we don't know and hoping it works out or investing in real estate themselves, knowing they don't have the time, energy, or they've done the research to know how to vet tenants, to know how to hire the right contractors, and then maybe be in the situation that I was in. You know, when I talk about those hardships, I always knew I signed up for that, right? I mean, the days when I'm sitting there, you know, in an empty house, you know, crying because the, you know, water's leaking everywhere <laughs> and, and this is going to cost me another $5,000. I knew at the end that this was the risk, right? This is why we say real estate has some risk. And it was also like, this is why I don't want to flip properties because mm -hmm. I had no money coming in. But on, a, on an apartment building, 
you know, I would have had other other units that were that were paying some of that call. So it wouldn't have been as drastic. So for me, when I unpacked everything, I said, real estate works. What doesn't work for me is flipping because I had a full time job. I couldn't be on site. I didn't have the construction knowledge or background. What I do have is a business background, with project management skills, operational. I can look at a million dollar budget understand where the line items are figure out how we could tighten up here it doesn't matter what that line item is right it's just it's forecasting you know at a certain point when you're dealing with large budgets it's hey why are we spending 10 percent more this quarter than we did last quarter why is this here why is this here hey what can we do here why is our marketing budget here like how effective is this let's break you know that's a I know that that's that's what I've been doing for 15 years. I understand that thoroughly, whether it is for pop, whether it's for automotives, whether it is for Nike, whether it's for an apartment building. I understand how to look at those numbers and understand where there might be some overstep there and how to tighten up the marketing budgets. Right. So that made it easier for me to say, hey, play in this space here with their scale. You can have full time professional folks operating it. You can bring in and help other people. And the last thing that made it important for me and why I love doing podcasts like this is when I got into this business, I really thought it was about the individual. So I was trying to build my own personal portfolio. And that's, you know, trying to do it quietly and stacking up my little chips and getting my, my, my plan B going. And then I realized that there is such a, a shortage of information. And that's what's just information, but representation in this industry. And when you don't see people who look like you doing something, you may not think you can do it. And I didn't see very many people who looked like me in apartment syndication, for sure. So most people that look like me are either flipping houses, they got a license, you know, or they're just buying rentals. So when you talk about being able to pull money together to go buy a 10, 15, $20 million apartment building, to my peers, that sounds ridiculous. John, you got about to go buy a $10 million apartment building, right? That sounds ridiculous, but they need to see it to understand it and to understand that busy professionals can own these kind of assets. It's a real, it's a real opportunity for you. So that became really important. I also watched when we went through rounds of layoffs, unfortunately, the first group of people to get let go are, are people who are in the minority, you know, for various reasons. So you get into net worth and current wealth and all that. And again, a lot of minority groups, they're behind where some of their peers are. So all this is to ladder up to say for those folks who have done things the quote unquote right, right way, you know, you went to school, you got your degree, you've got this great professional service, but you don't have wealth. You don't have assets. You got to change that. And maybe you don't have the time and energy to learn how to invest in stocks or real estate for yourself or crypto or whatever it is. But investment vehicles like real estate syndication can help you start to acquire assets, can help you start to acquire wealth. And this is something I wanted to provide as a platform for other people, even if they don't invest with me. I want them to understand that this is out there so that they can have options for their own families and their futures. Freaking mic drop. Holy cow. Oh, my gosh, dude. Give me a second to process. Brother. Yeah. Home run, home run, 10 out of 10, man. Truly appreciate you sharing some of those horror stories. Truly appreciate you giving us some insight. And the fact that you're willing to put others first and walk the walk and not just talk it, I mean, it speaks volumes to your character. To give an example and to sort of bring it back a little bit, you said you could have cut your losses and you decided to look out for the hard money lender. 
who does that? You know, I mean, that, that's just remarkable, man. And, and then you took that same philosophy and then you implemented that into what can I do with my people? How can I help all my people? What can we do to be able to work together to be able to tackle and conquer bigger and better? Salute to you. Salute to you. So help me out and, and talk to me as if I was an investor coming to you. Yeah. Um, explain to me how you go about looking for some of these properties in your buy box. What kind of markets are you trying to target? You target, you talked a little bit about different states, but why those states? And, and yeah. how do you hone in on specific cities or areas? Well, after losing money on the flips, I realized that I don't like losing money. So let's, <laughs> let's start there. Um, definitely something I didn't enjoy. So my, my criteria really comes down to how do I mitigate risk? How do we preserve capital? If you think about risk from that standpoint, there are really three ways a deal can go sideways. One, it just flat out doesn't cash flow, right? If you're if you're negative cash flow, you're gonna be in a bad situation. Two, you can have capital expenses that come up. You know, roof blows off and you gotta replace roof, you don't have the budget for it, it could put you in a pinch. And then a third way is that the loan comes due at an inopportune time. You know, you haven't finished your business plan or whatever the case may be, the market's bad. And you got a loan that's expiring and you kind of get caught there. So those are three things we look at when we talk about, you know, reducing risk. Going back to the cash flow, the biggest thing with cash flow is, you know, with any deal we do, we typically do a value add approach. But we want to buy the property for a certain amount of money or based on a certain amount of cash flow. We want to increase that cash flow and we want to hope that that allows the property to go up in value over time. But ultimately, I'm looking at demand. So when I'm looking at markets, when I'm thinking about cities or states, I want to understand demand. What are the demand drivers? Uh, is there population growth? Is there job growth? Uh, but also, when I talk about demand, what is the supply looking like? You know, in 2023, we saw more supply come online than we've seen since the mid 80s. So that is something that's going to be a big story for 2024 because there's a similar amount of properties coming online in 2024. So this is really a supply boom after having such a housing shortage. But most of that supply is class A luxury. So when you think about the gap between class A luxury and what those folks can afford versus class B or even C plus, usually it's it's a gap where they're not playing in the same crowd. So it's not that class A luxury where you know, rents are maybe $2,000, whatever it is, we're still talking about workforce housing. We're still talking about, you know, nice, desirable locations, just not the higher end luxury stuff. And because of that, you know, we feel like we have a pretty good sense of, you know, where the markets are. Um, they're not building. That supply is not coming online for class B stuff. Typically, again, we're in desirable locations, but we also want to be in places where it's easier to do business. So it's not to say you can't invest in you know areas that have a bit more regulations. But for us, we just want to, again, we want to remove as many obstacles as possible, remove as much risk, mitigate that risk as much as we can. So typically we're looking at areas that have at least landlord friendly or landlord neutral regulations we don't want to be in a place where um, it's an uphill battle against landlords so from that standpoint again that we talked about the markets louisville is one in kentucky kentucky is a pretty good market for uh real estate investing parts of ohio for sure uh, indiana as well and then we talked about georgia carolinas some of those southeast states but we're trying to find all of those things and, and if i could give your listeners one little piece of advice i use a ton of data i got a lot of resources we use you're probably not going to be able to pull it all together in a way that, you know, groups like mine, groups like you guys do. The, if, if I could simplify it to a great piece of advice, just follow demand. Figure out where the demand is, what's driving demand. And when I'm buying, when I'm buying a property, all I really want to know 
all I'm hoping and trying to trying to guesstimate is demand is going to be higher when I sell this property than it is when I buy the property. And that demand is both from a renter standpoint and from a potential ownership standpoint. So that's what I'm looking for when I'm buying a property. I want to make sure that there's going to be higher demand in the future. That is so good. I love how you can just rewind this and just go through those items and just start going towards a market and pick one. And I absolutely love how you mentioned about demand, how critical that is. And it's interesting. One of the things that I always think about and I find so valuable that you taught me is when we were looking at markets and trying to figure out where actually to go, we ran through analytics and we went through all these different pieces and we identified what seemed like great markets. And one of the things that I love though, is you're like, man, get on a plane, go there and feel it, see what you like. And I just, when you land, when you go there, you talk to people, you spend time there, just so valuable. And I just think that was like icing on the cake. So one thing that I absolutely love that you always said. I was gonna ask you about risk management and you already touched on that. Um, so I'm gonna change my question just slightly. And what do you think is the most important piece of risk management, especially having investor money on the line or these bigger you know, multi-million dollar properties? The right team is critical. You've got to get the right people involved in every aspect of the business. You know, going back to where I've made mistakes in the business, I, I can always point it back to partnering with the wrong people or hiring the wrong, wrong people, right? Mm -hmm. If you if you hire the right contractor, the right developer, the right inspector, the right plumber, they're going to see things that you can never see. And if you think that you're going to be the expert, you're setting yourself up for failure. Mm -hmm. So find the right people, vet them, get the best people you can get, and let them work, you know, let them, let them work, ask them questions, uh, understand the process as best you can, but ultimately getting the right people involved, that's going to save you as much as anything else you can do. Love it. Thousand percent. I like that. That's why I'm sticking with this guy, Cole. Getting the right people <laughs> in the right places. This dude's amazing. So help me bring it around full circle. Thinking large picture. What's your outlook or your views on real estate in the market going into the next couple of years? I'm, I'm bullish on real estate in general, um, not just for the next few years. I mean, for me, I think when we look at it, the macro trends on real estate, we still have a housing shortage when it comes to the residential side of it. There's other aspects of commercial real estate where there's going to be some opportunities. But ultimately, real estate is one of those businesses that if you can learn it and understand it, it's it's been around for centuries. It's going to continue to be around. Figure it out. You know, owning land is something that they're not making more of. So you can always find ways to monetize that or shift it. And I think where we get where we have opportunities as investors is figuring out the right strategy. You know, hey, should this continue to be a, a B-class property or maybe we should do something else? Uh, should we add in some midterm rentals, maybe do some short-term rentals? Should we switch this to that? Should we convert this to a hotel, right? You can always change the use of real estate, but I'm always big on it. With that said, when people make mistakes in real estate, it's usually because they didn't do the right homework or they didn't have the right people involved up front. They're buying in, I don't even want to say bad locations, but their business plan didn't match the location dynamics, right? You buy a property thinking you can push rents 10%, but there's nothing in the market that suggests you can do that moving forward. Maybe you could do it last year or two years ago, but maybe the factors that allowed you to do that in the past are no longer true today. Supply is one of those things that's slapping people in the face right now because they were like, oh, we're going to push rents. You know, rent grow, grew 10, 20% over the last couple of years. Maybe we'll just get 5% I'm being conservative. No, no. There's like three times as many apartments coming online this year. 
they weren't there last year. So now consumers have options. So you have all these things, you know, when it comes to consumer spending, you got to pay attention to, to those things, some of the jobs, some of the markets that you're in. So, again, I'm not trying to turn everybody into economists because I'm certainly not. But I do understand the important things to pay attention to to understand when you're making your projections on rent growth, how that could be impacted. And at the end of the day, you know, when you talk about risk mitigation, having the right people in place is key. And when I look at my overall you know, outlook. You know, I read a lot of the reports to try to understand what they see, what's going on. But real estate is local. You know, what's happening in Cincinnati, Ohio is going to be very different from what's happening in San Francisco. So understand what's happening in your market. And then you have to adjust your strategy accordingly. So maybe real estate everywhere isn't going to be great. But, you know, based on our fundamentals and what we like, our markets tend to move a little slower, which is good because there aren't these wild swings. So again, if I were out West, maybe I'd feel a little differently, but for our markets, the fundamentals haven't really changed. The jobs are logistics and healthcare and education. So those are you know tried and true industries. They tend to do well during recessions. So we feel pretty good about the future and the near future outlook on our, our, our markets and pretty much our portfolio. Love that. Love that. So much to unpack there, but incredible. And Agreed. We're also super excited. We think there's good things to come and we're waiting for it positioned, hopefully to take advantage of it. So it'll be exciting. Definitely this year. With that being said, Nate, I think it's time. Is it time already? It's time. Oh my gosh. Okay. All right. All right. John, we're going to ask you a few questions. All right. Nate, cue the music. <laughs> what separates top performing real estate investors from the rest of the crowd action taking action and overcoming challenges what is a daily habit that's contributed to your success working out that morning workout i feel like i'm unstoppable and i'm in a competition and that gives me the mindset to go crush today love that what is a piece of advice that you'd give to yourself if you're starting again Find the right people and stick to the right people, but focus on the people. Hmm. What is your favorite real estate or business book? So many, man. Normally I'd say Atomic Habits because I, I just love the book, but I'm going to say 10X is using a 2X by uh, Dan Sullivan. Love that book. Last question for you. What is the biggest non-monetary benefit that you've gotten from real estate investing? Having some time flexibility, you know, I'm able to, to coach my boys in sports, I'm taking them around and build my schedule around their schedule, which is not something I thought I would be doing a few years ago, but here we are. But it allows me to make my priorities my priorities. And that's something a lot of people can't do. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the ability to do that. Beautiful answers. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. With that, you made it through. Wasn't too bad, was it? <laughs> no, not too bad at all. Okay. Absolutely. Love it, love it, man. It, it's an honor, a pleasure, and a privilege having you on. Before we get out of here, we want to ask you, do you have a piece of advice for newer investors, folks that haven't yet stepped off the porch, that you would like to share? Another piece of nugget that you just want to make sure that we can get out there to our listeners. 
I think the biggest thing is to, and I, and I normally say this for raising capital, but I think it's true for just getting started investing, right? There, there's really three things, I'll come to three C's to attracting capital, but the three C's to getting started as a real estate investor. That's confidence, credibility, and connections. And that confidence is the, the first one. And if you're sitting on the porch waiting to get started, it's likely because you don't have confidence to take action yet. So instead of you know, just running out there and buying a property or sitting on the porch, figure out what the next step is and give yourself credit for those steps along the journey. So I mentioned Atomic Habits, one of my favorite books. I didn't mention there, there, but one of the reasons it's so important to me is if you're listening to me right now, you're already taking a step, right? Listening to podcasts, attending events, reading books. That's the first step. Make a, you know, make a goal and say, hey, I'm going to read three books. And after I read three books, then I'm going to connect with three agents or I'm going to, you know, analyze three, deal, whatever it is. Right. But show that progression of what does it take to go from where you're at today to where you want to be and start to check off those milestones so that you can give yourself credit for making progress along the journey. But too many of us don't. Right. It's either 100 percent game where, you know, either you're a real estate investor and you bought some properties or I didn't buy any properties, So I'm not doing anything. But we're not giving ourselves credit for Hey, I attended, you know, three events this quarter. I listened to, you know, six podcasts. I read two books. Like you are making progress in educating yourself and building your confidence. And you probably know more than you give yourself credit for. And that's something I would want people to really focus on is build your confidence while you're still trying to build your capability, but give yourself credit for the progress you make along the journey. So valuable. Absolutely love that. If anybody wants to reach out, ask you questions, anything like that, what's the best place to send them? Yeah, you can check out our website, kasmancapital.com. We have a free deal package available on our website. You can also find our podcast, Multifamily Insights, which is available on the podcast or on the website. And then uh, we have a link to our mastermind group as well. So, I mean, figure out which journey is right for you. The podcast is free. So I always push people to start there and see if that makes sense. The sample deal package is free too. So we got some free resources on there as well. So check that out. Awesome. We'll make sure to link to all of that good stuff and especially the mastermind, which we're all a part of and uh, absolutely love. So John, thank you so, so much for doing this, spending your time with us. It has been incredible and it's awesome to learn more about your story and who you are and just do this. So thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely a pleasure. Now pleasure was all ours, man. Thank you so much. And for everybody that's out there, get home safe if you're driving. Otherwise we'll see you next time on the next episode. Take care. Thanks for listening to Views. If you enjoyed today's show, take a second to hit the like button. And if you haven't already, subscribe to our channel so you never miss an episode. Until next time, peace and love.